So I think that for me, creating community was a matter of taking care of my mental well-being. It was a matter of finding systems of support that could, 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 could speak louder than the imposter syndrome, that could be there for me whenever, whenever even the echo was telling me I couldn't do it. Even whenever silence was telling me you can no longer, like you're not capable, like I needed to have voices that, 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 that could empower me. And those voices were voices in my community. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores how we can help make an impact on our nation's highest growing student demographic, English language learners. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. How does the trauma that migrant children experience manifest in the classroom, and what impact does it have on their ability to communicate and develop relationships at school? What can educators who do not share the lived experience of their students do to best support them, and why is better representation so crucial? How can those entering higher education or other realms where they may be underrepresented or experience imposter syndrome draw motivation and support from their communities? We discuss these questions and much more with Dr. José Luis Celaya. Dr. Celaya is a dreamer born in San Pedro Sula, Honduras. At 13 years of age, he was obligated to flee his country and embark on a journey to the United States as an unaccompanied minor. He fled Honduras after living for many years as a street child in absolute poverty and violence levels. After a dangerous 45-day journey, he was found on American soil by immigration officers and months later reunited with his mother and sister in Texas. With the help of his mother, he enrolled in school, and like so many of our students, he started to build a new life in this country. Dr. Jose Luis Elaya is a graduate of Texas A&M University Department of Education and the CEO of Dr. Elaya Educational Consulting, LLC. At Texas A&M, Dr. Zelaya pursued a bachelor's in interdisciplinary studies, a master's in education in curriculum and instruction, and a doctorate in urban education. He attributes each of his academic accomplishments to his family, mentors, and community who have supported his dreams of educational progress. As you'll hear in our conversation, Dr. Zelaya is also an inspirational example of the grit, tenacity, and adaptability that so many migrant students bring to our schools and communities. It was a privilege to talk with him on Highest Aspirations, and it is a conversation that I will not soon forget. We hope you enjoy it as well. Dr. Jose Luis Celaya, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Thank you for having me. I am honored to be here. It's an honor to have you. Uh, I, I, I met you through my, uh, my colleague, John Seidlitz, who always has great recommendations for folks to bring on. And so I always kind of follow his advice and I was, I mean, I was amazed by their, some of the resources that he sent over to me. You had a Ted talk that I watched that was unbelievable. Um, and then, uh, and then we chatted and I thought, wow, this is going to be a really great conversation. So I'm glad that the day has finally come. Um, and I think it's a really good time to have this conversation as well for a variety of reasons. So, so let's get started. Um, to say that the very least you have an incredibly powerful story about your journey to, to where you are now, which we'll get to a little later. And I think with everything that's going on right now at the southern border, you're in a really unique position to offer some, some I think, really valuable and important insight. So just kind of a little background, and you're going to get into this a lot more, I'm sure, but you, you fled Honduras after uh, living many years as, as a street child and in absolute poverty and a situation you describe as extreme violence in one of the most dangerous cities in the world, which is uh, well-known. And after a 45-day journey, you were found on American soil by immigration officers. So I'd love it if you could sort of take us back to that moment. I mean, what, what were you feeling when you 
were found that day as a way to kind of bring that perspective into the educators who are listening and to who are working with with students that are that 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 have similar situations as you absolute desperation it's it's a desperation that completely takes control over you one that it's filled with hope because you're in the united states and 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 you think that once you're in the united states life will change magically because you don't know what a big city like houston or chicago or seattle or new york tends to look like you're just thinking about if i can make it to the united states life can be different so once once i'm in once i'm in the united states and i crossed the rio bravo it was it was painful because i was i was nowhere to find my mom my mother was nowhere to be found and that was and that was difficult for me because i remember screaming i remember being thirsty i remember being uh being upset being worried but also being being completely tired like i had just had a a journey that that was you talk about being on top of the train you talk about walking deserts you know i'm i'm 34 years old but i have 14 surgeries in my body and and that is part of the journey so i remember whenever i was in the united states it was it was absolute desperation to look for my mother yeah, which is the reason that that you came and the reason that many, many children come to the United States. You share that story with a lot of others. And soon after that, you ended up, um, like many others as well, in a detention center um, before you were allowed to, to seek political asylum. So you talk about that moment and that desperation and that sort of confusing feeling of being on American soil and having those feelings that I think people can understand of being thirsty, being tired, being just that feeling of desperation, not knowing sort of what's next. And then you end up in a detention center where things maybe are a little bit more organized, though I'd love to hear your perspective. What, what is that experience life like? And what should educators know about that experience, again, that are working with students who have been through it? My, my experience happened in year 2000. So that my experience was very different than the influx that we're experiencing now. So I think that it's important to acknowledge that what I experienced was very different, very different because in the center in which I live, there was maybe about 20 or 25 uh, children. So we grew a closer community. We knew each other. But at the same time, it, it, you know, what's interesting is that I, I was very grateful that I had a meal, that I had three meals. I was very grateful that I had clothing and that I had a bed and that I had a place where, where I was being treated for my wounds, my physical wounds, and, and, and people that were there to, to ask me how I was doing and teach me English and teach me how to uh, solve puzzles and, and, and do various things to be able to take care of myself. But, but I think that what was not being taken care of was, was my trauma. Mm -hmm. What was not being taken care of was was all the pain of seeing my brother passed away in, in Honduras, of seeing my father being abusive, being, seeing my mother migrate, migrating to this country. And then all of a sudden making it to, to a facility in the United States where people had this incredible expectations of me, where they needed me to be respectful and to be obedient and to be X, Y and Z, while at the same time, it was very difficult for me to express my gratitude. It was difficult for me to express uh, my respect because of everything that I had gone through. Sure. So whenever I think about my, my life there, I was grateful. I just didn't know how to communicate it. I was, very, I was going through a lot of pain, and that's all I could remember. 
Yeah, you bring up a really important point, and and thank you for clarifying that it was the year two thousand, and obviously things have changed. Um, and hopefully at this point, I don't know, but I'm I'm hoping and I'm seeing it a little bit at least that that trauma, at least in schools, um, is being dealt with perhaps more than it was then. But but I want to talk a little bit about that because. You know, I was a high school teacher myself, and I started very young at 22 years old without much training. And I uh, worked with students who probably were in similar situations uh, as you. And um, and that was I started teaching at about 2000 as well. So it was about the, the same time. I'm a little bit older than you. And I, as a teacher, did not know how to deal with exactly what it is that you are talking about, which is students that don't know how to communicate uh, the way that they're feeling. Uh, you, men- you mentioned the word disobedient. Outwardly, it looks like these students are uh, are being difficult for the sake of being difficult. And I know I'm using simple terms. What what do teachers need to know about students like that? Teachers like me who are entering the classroom and who are facing classroom management, and I have to deal with. And how am I going to deal with this situation when I have so much else going on? Because I think that's that's still a major issue in a lot of schools right now. What do you what what do you want them to know about students like that? That's very important to to acknowledge because as I have the opportunity to travel the nation and to work with different school districts and meet the students in different areas, whether they are whether they are right now in detention centers or whether they are in programs of newcomer arrive, arrivals or bilingual education programs or English language learners, or whether it's an event where they just graduated from college, there is there is one pattern and one variable that they all have in common. And that is that they are strong, that they are so capable that if they made it to where they are, it's not because of chance. It's not because of uh, a, a, a combination of luck and therefore they are here, but they have strategically created a plan that allowed them an opportunity to have a different life. So they are in schools because they see this as a transformational way for 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 a change not only in their home countries back home but but also for their families here as well as their future families and i think that that's the very first thing to understand to understand that these children are capable and if and if and if that is a challenge or if that is in question i am one of them and i completed a bachelor's and associates a master's and a phd and i grew up in a trash field I grew up among violence and I grew up among, among unaccompanied minors and, and I'm not an example. I'm only a sample of the potential of what they can be and what they are, uh, what they, what they are purpose in this life. I think that that's the first thing. And I think the second thing that is very, very important is to, is to acknowledge the disconnect. If teachers believe that they are capable of understanding the experience of a child who migrates from places where definitions are different than here, then then we will never be able to serve them properly. And this is what I mean. In the United States, absolute levels of poverty are defined as someone who makes less than $2 a day. In the United States, less than one population of its country live under absolute levels of poverty because no one lives under less than $2 a day. However, in Honduras, in Honduras, more than 48% of the people live in absolute levels of poverty, less than $2 a day. And almost, and almost two-thirds of every person, of every person in Honduras less, lives under less than $5 a day. And that's data from the World Bank. 
So for a, for an educator to think that they understand that a child is migrating poverty, but to conceptualize it from poverty in our own terms is not understanding their own terms. So we must understand their own terms before they're able to understand ours. Yeah. It, it, it sounds like both are a matter of understanding and empathizing. I mean, you, you started off by talking about we have to recognize how strong and capable these students are. And somehow that is missed. Somehow it's missed. Well, you talk about somebody had to make a strategic plan to, to get to this country uh, for that transformational experience of school, which you described as, which we'll get to in a second. And sometimes have to do it more than once to make it happen and go through these incredible challenges. And so they might have a strategic plan, but that might have to change over and over again in order for it to for it to transpire and for it to come to fruition, which is the very example of what we want in people, the ability to make a plan. But when the plan goes bad to adapt quickly. Um, So I really appreciate you saying that. That's really important. And then understanding what's going on, you know, in, in, in other countries, I think, you know, there's there's the. There's the way to understand what you described, which is to understand what the student is coming from, understand the levels of poverty and not compare it to what's happening in this country. And then there's like the policy piece, right, which I don't claim to be an expert on. But I do know that, you know, if you look through speaking, speaking with people like Sonia Nasario, who's a journalist, wrote Enrique's Journey and, um, and has done a lot of research on, on this on this topic, that, you know, the reasons w- that people are coming to this country are what you describe, absolute poverty, violence, difficult situations, so what can we as a nation do to understand what's happening in those countries? It's a conversation for another time, probably, right? But that, you know, we could do a lot to kind of stem the tide if, if the situation were probably better in those countries. Because I imagine most people don't necessarily want to leave their home countries and uproot everything to come, every, uh, to come someplace else. So it, as a way to kind of review what you said there, I know that was long-winded, but that was, I really appreciate that. And I want to take it from the moment where you were talking about that transformative experience, school, right? That's the reason why people come. And so you, months after this detention center, you, you, you reunited with your mother and sister in Texas. You have this amazing story, which I'd love for you to tell a little bit. Um, and then with the help of your, your mother, who, who you have, I know, incredible respect for, you, you enrolled in school. And that was what you described as a transformative moment. And it served as the moment where you start to build a new life in this, in this country. So thinking about that, were you aware of that when you started school? And and if so, was it like an intrinsic motivation that you had to succeed that comes with that strength and capability that you were describing? And who helped you realize that potential? I know your mother did, but others as well. Yeah, and, and it was always there. You know, it was there whenever I was five and I had to outsmart the other kid who was shining shoes. And I had to convince you a person who lives under absolute levels of poverty, that your shoes need to be shined, even though you live in Honduras, which is a tropical weather storm, and it rains all the time, means that your shoes are not going to be kept clean. So <laughs> you understand all these things, and you understand all these things as a small child, and then you grow up and you understand, oh my goodness, like I, I, need, to, I need to survive in one of the most dangerous cities of the world. So I think that it becomes an instinct that through life, um, it begins to be to be flourished. But I also have always, I have always believed that life is my greatest teacher. You know, I have I have lost a brother, I have lost, you know, um, my father, you know, to, to drugs and violence. And and then I was reunified with my mother. So at one term, you know, I, I felt like I lost a lot of things. So I have always relied on this concept of life being my teacher, my greatest teacher, because I always wanted to be educated, I always wanted to learn. But in Honduras, like 
oftentimes militaries or gang members would come and fight in the in the in the in the schools because remember i, I was born in the in the 1980s El Salvador and Honduras had just had a civil war. Mm -hmm. Honduras had just experienced also an internal, uh, not a civil war, but a war between the two countries. And then Honduras had experienced a civil war as well. So then you add up all this violence, all this poverty to a child that is born in the 1980s. To me, to me, that was just my normal reality. So you grab all of those skills that I learned as a kid that grew up in that environment. And then you put them in an American school and you tell them to succeed. Oh my goodness, like, of course I will. Are you kidding me? Like, I, I have skills to know how to succeed in the most dangerous city of the world. I have skills to be able to, to be able to sell, to, to be able to make money out of nothing. I have the ability to live in a place where there are hurricanes and, 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 and natural disasters left and right. Of course I would take advantage of an education. So that was already in me. Did I acknowledge it? Did I know it? Did I, did, I, did I believe it was there? I think that what did it was also understanding the sacrifices of my mother and seeing how she worked, seeing how she, she didn't care. I mean, I mean, she worked 14, 15, 16 hours a day for what? For 60, 70 dollars. For what? So that I could have a good, a good backpack or good books. So seeing that, seeing that created in me a sense of anger, created in me a sense of like, enough is enough. But how do you do it by while being undocumented? How do you do it while not understanding the language? How do you do it? I did the math and just working by, per hour would never do it. So I, I wanted to be able to honor my parents and honor all the sacrifices uh, that were made before me. But to tell you the truth, did I know it while I was going through it? Ah. If you look at my school reports and you judge me by those, you will come to find out that there was a lot of a lot of behavioral problems. But you would also, but you what you will not find out is Mrs. Wright, Mrs. Gonzalez, Mr. Highnote, Mr. Wallace, people that were there that believed in me and who empowered me. So those invisible heroes are the ones who made this visible. Yeah, I, I was sort of expecting you to get to the point that you just got to. You clearly are a person based on everything that we've just heard and what I know about you who had that motivation. You talk about your childhood and I love that story about shining shoes in a place where nobody really needs it, having to outsmart other people. There's very clear that those are skills and, and I hear lots of people tell those stories. Um, those are survival skills that, that, that can help you in so many other parts of life. But again, it's that trauma piece and the stuff that 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 you go through and coming to a different place and being in school and looking at those things, those report cards, right? That 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 are supposed to tell a story that in some ways isn't really true. And what is it that makes us surpass that, transcend that? Um, you know, you just mentioned the names of three or four what you call invisible heroes, teachers who who guided you through it. Do you think that every student who has been through experiences like yours has that has can list those three or four teachers and and if so what is it that, that they need to do to motivate though not to motivate that's the wrong word to help those students succeed using the skills that they've already built throughout their lives one one of the things that i have learned is that trauma limits your ability not only to communicate but also to to feel, to express, to, to, to make sense of things. 
And oftentimes when you come from a place where you're often rejected, where you're often ignored, where society sees you as a child and still says you do not deserve to be educated. You do not deserve because of, again, right? Because of the infrastructures are, 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 are not in place or whenever they live in an agricultural space where electricity or drinkable water or just the basic basic human needs have not gotten there. And then all of a sudden you have a child that makes it into an American school where there are incredible resources, where teachers are incredibly trained, where teachers, where principals, educational leaders have, have the desire to serve. And then all of a sudden there is this huge clash of emotions, mm. huge clash of emotions. You, I can't even begin to describe it. Yeah, like, like you take there, the kid is is used to being taken advantage of, and then all of a sudden there is somebody willing to serve, willing to help, willing to, and oftentimes the child himself or herself is not able to accept that because of that trauma. And that is where the catch is: understanding how do you fix both? How do you communicate both? How do you help the child build trust? When, they, when their own individual trust has been broken for so many years, because the experiences that this child will never speak of, that's what the problem is. What we will never know of, that's what the problem is. We will know the data, but the data can only share so much. What about their true pain? What about their true sacrifices? What about the real things they experience that I myself have to oftentimes stay silent of? So that's where it's also very, very painful to be able to think about. So it's a plan to be able to help the teacher understand their experiences, but it's also to help the student understand that it's okay, that they're safe, that they're now in a space where they can go to school and not be afraid of gunshots or not be afraid of, 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 of someone is gonna come in and kidnap them and, and recruit them into a gang and that they're, they're in a space where, where they can learn and that education can change their lives. So it's very different. It's, 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 it's very, very different to compare my experience to now the experience of a child that is now in the school because I'm trying to go back to that, that moment in that space, in that space in time. It's, it, it, it's really complicated. And I'm asking you questions, I think, that are almost impossible to answer for everybody because everybody's different. That's what makes it so complicated. But you know, the way I look at it is if we don't begin to ask the questions, especially um, to people with your level of expertise and experience in these matters, um, you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna solve them. These are hard challenges, um, and I'm glad that you're willing to to talk about them. Okay, so sort of, I love this kind of. Uh, I'm I'm throwing you some curveball questions here, just because I'm there's some great you know uh, uh, responses that I'm hearing from from the kind of trajectory of your experience. But let's go back to that. So, you you quickly became uh, a dreamer, an English language learner, and a first generation student. These are all labels that we hear all the time. They're so common, but I'm guessing they mean a lot more to you. Talk with us about um, how those labels affected you as a student and as an adolescent growing up. And looking back at that experience, what do you think educators should know about what these labels mean to, to students? Well, I, I think that there's identity. There's identity, there is culture, there is pride in, in, in owning who we are. And, and understanding that, for example, being a dreamer, um, for me, there's identity in it because as, because I'm, I'm I'm somebody who benefits from from the Dream Act. I'm someone who benefits from the Texas Senate Bill 1528 in the state of Texas, and I'm also someone who has been involved in the, in the activist 
movement. So for me, there's a sense of identity there into understanding that I'm not only myself, but that there's millions of us and that many of us have similar aspirations to honor our families. Uh, as an English language learner, I think that I think that, that that to me, to me, that's it's humbling and it's grounding because it allows me, it allows me to understand that we're all English language learners in a sense. The same way that I'm a Spanish language learner, because if you put me in a history class and now you're gonna teach me Spanish terms from 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 the 1800s, mm -hmm. you're now teaching me a new language. Right, right. So I'm always going to be an English language learner, especially as I have transcended into different levels of academia. For example, whenever I whenever I enter my master's uh, uh, my master's degree, I remember my first paper that I wrote. Uh, I I wrote it and I was so excited and it was so many pages and I was like, here it is. And and then I remember getting it back and and I got an F. I got an F on my first paper and the teacher called me into the office and she explained to me and said that she had given me an F because it was not academic writing. But instead, what she did is that she changed the rubric and she graded me for creative writing. And for creative writing, she gave me an A and gave me an opportunity to understand academic mm -hmm. writing. So I think that understanding the different layers as I move forward, it's incredible for me. But also it allows me to connect to an entire population and to be able to grab what I learned and to let them know how I got here. Because again, it is that same eagerness to always continue learning, whether you're in the beginning level and going to intermediate and from intermediate to advanced or from advanced to high advanced, that concept of continuous growing, if it's happening to a PhD person, yeah, it's going to yeah. happen to them as well. So that's something that to me is really cool to, to kind of like connect with then and now. I'm always going to be an English language learner. So I think that there's identity, there is pride and there is uh, an understanding that it's that there is a journey that led me here, which was not easy because oftentimes people with those identities don't have the opportunity to get a doctorate. And that's a problem. Yeah, and that's a problem. You use two words that I really liked about uh, being an English language learner. And that's, that's a term, by the way, that uh, as you know, is, is one that I, you know, lots of us question, including myself, is that the right term? Is there another term? Is that multilingual learner? Another conversation for another time. But I love how you call it grounding and humbling. And I love it how you mention the sort of informal language versus the academic language and the opportunity to learn academic language as sort of a gift, as something you can learn. And also uh, a professor in this case who understands that you have the potential, that your language is not a barrier that if provided the key to that academic language, you're going to have both. You're going to have the experience, the creativity, and also the academic language uh, that you can use. And I, you know, as somebody who learned Spanish mostly in school and traveling a little bit uh, and, and, and learning specialized English, I completely understand what you're saying there. So I love that description uh, of being an English learner. Um, and, and the other thing, you know, we, we talked a little bit about your teachers, those invisible heroes, as you talked uh, earlier about how they kind of stoked your motivation and helped you through difficult times. You also credit a lot of your success to the support that your community granted you. Um, but even with that support, as you've kind of alluded to, you struggle to access higher education opportunities. And you just mentioned that it's a problem that, that, that 
a lot of students in your position cannot get to where you've you've gone. Um, talk with us about how community support is so important for students with this incredible potential, but so many barriers to overcome, particularly when it comes to dealing with that, you know, that again, it's that trauma that many students have experienced and maybe ground that question, what you just mentioned, which is that it's a problem that a lot of students cannot access what you access. That's, that's incredible because whenever I think about oftentimes the places where I'm in, um, there is always this idea, do I belong here? Um, I go into a master's program and I'm like, oh my goodness, can I write? Then I go into a PhD program and I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm the first, the only one that looks like this. And then I see another one that looks like me and I'm like, oh yes, let's go. There's a few of us. And then I think on the understanding that in community, there are shared experiences allowed me to understand that being the only one was problematic. So I started looking for the other ones that had similar experiences across cultures and understanding their, their specific experiences that got them to where they're at. Because for example, I have met so many people who are English learners um, from Iran, people who are English learners from Ghana, people who are English learners from Kenya or from Costa Rica. And I think that understanding that background has enriched my own understanding of English lingua uh, franca and understanding how it's utilized throughout the world and how here now we have the ability to be able to educate through language. So I think that for me, creating community right away at an institution of higher education, where again, giving my background, Giving, 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 giving the sentiments of rejection that I had, giving the sentiments of, of, of discrimination by being undocumented. And then all of a sudden I make it to a university. Are you kidding me? Like, are you kidding me? So of course I felt like I didn't belong. Of course I felt like, like I was not supposed to be there. Yeah. How am I going to financially pay for all of this while still being undocumented and unable to work? So I think that for me creating community was a matter of taking care of my mental well-being, was a matter of finding systems of support that could, 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 could speak louder than the imposter syndrome, that could be there for me whenever, whenever even the echo was telling me I couldn't do it. Even whenever silence was telling me you can no longer, like you're not capable, like I needed to have voices that, 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 that could empower me. And those voices were voices in my community. There were the voices of, of professoras, of professores. There were the voices of, 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 La, of La Sobadora, that, you know, the lady that would massage me after I would get hurt from a soccer game and she would be sharing, you know, her a Asian wisdom. And, and, I, and I valued that because I understood that an 80 year old woman had wisdom in her. And that was someone in my community. Whenever I went to, to a restaurant and I, and I interacted with, with somebody and I learned from their experiences, I, I, think, I think that understanding that, that I never got away from my community, that I, that I am my community, that I represent my community, took care of my mental well-being, that I was not alone. But at the same time, it built a family away from family. It built a family away from home because my mother wasn't there, my father wasn't there, my stepdad, my, my sister. So I think that understanding that I had friends, that I had colleagues, um, really quickly that, that evolved into a network, into a network that, um, that provided opportunities professionally, academically, um, and personally. So I think that being surrounded by community is what got me here because I am not the result of ego, e egocentrism. I'm the result of community. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was great. I mean, one thing that you said that I'll just highlight, I I love, I was thinking the whole time that you were speaking about that expression, you know, imposter syndrome, right? And what you said was the, the, the community, the voice of the community speaks louder than the voice of imposter syndrome. I thought that was really well said uh, and something that we can all learn from. And again, you know, you, when you, when you began talking about that, you talked about how you sought it out, like you looked for it you, you knew that it was something that you needed, but it wasn't necessarily people who are sort of exactly like you had done the same exact thing, but people in that community who have experienced different things. And that's a great, great way to sort of create diverse communities, right? With people from different experiences. And we're going to learn a lot from each other that way. Um, I think that was really well said. All right. So let's talk, I want to talk uh, about what you're doing now, because we kind of just went through a very sort of short version of your trajectory from when you were, you were young to, to where you are now. And, and this is the real, I mean, that's all really interesting to me, but this is the part that I'm really interested in hearing a little bit more about. So you founded um, Dr. Sedlaya Educational Consulting LLC, which, which seeks to inspire and empower families and communities to experience the power of higher education. So much needed right now, as we've just discussed. Um, more importantly, your, your company represents uh, life efforts as well as the desire to provide your daughter the life you were not able to enjoy as a child. So you're, you're, you're bringing this right back to your family. Um, we have a lot of great people involved in this community of work and this, in this ELL community or multilingual community, whatever you call it, many of whom I've interviewed on the podcast um, who are doing amazing things. But this is this is really personal for you. Um, talk with us about how how you hope your work will create a lasting impact, and how you're collaborating with others in the field to make it happen. I seek to be a messenger. I seek to be a messenger that communicates information holistically, one that one that is able to meet with a student that that simply by saying my name is Jose Luis Elaya, soy Hondureño, and just by sharing a few identifiers that they immediately can identify with. Because oftentimes whenever speakers or whenever um, educators don't come from the backgrounds that the students come from, that that lack of representation is problematic. It's problematic. And although, although we need all the support in the world, we also need the proper representation. So I think that the right representation for not only myself, but for English learners around the nation, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one who has had the story that I have had, that there are, there are other dreamers who have, who have masters, who have medical degrees, who have law degrees. I think it's important for educational leaders to identify those, those models and to be able to bring them into the educational system for, for students to see themselves in, in reflected um, in, in, in them as, 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 as educators continue to, um, to educate and to, um, and, to, uh, and to prepare them to succeed um, academically. But I, think, but I think that for me, whenever I think about the work that I seek to do, I come from a background of motivational speaking. I come from a background of, of activism and advocacy. I, I have always, I have always utilized speaking as a sense of uh, empowerment. In fact, you know, it's really interesting because I feel that speaking, um, kind of like the, the the story of Sanson, uh, like if I don't speak, I feel like my hair is being cut off. Like, like, like that's that's all I can do. And if I don't, if I don't share my heart, it, I'm I'm shaving my head off. So for me. I understand that there is power in speaking, that there is power in our stories. So I, I, whenever, whenever I said I'm gonna finish the PhD, 
what is the best thing that I can give to my community, I look back into my experience and I look into my community, um, my community work. I looked into uh, the public speaking and, and I said, I want to go into educational consulting because a lot of the networks and a lot of the relationships that I had already built um, with the school district that I had been speaking for wanted more. They said, okay, you can speak, your story is great, but can you do more? Can, can, you, can you come in and meet with them one-on-one? -on -one? Can you do this? Can you do that? And that, and that led to curriculum, programming, trainings, uh, and different types of other services. So it evolved into, uh, into what is becoming, uh, but of course, this is where my passion is. Yeah, what a beautiful story as well. It, I love how this ties all together. I mean, it's you know, you're doing this speaking to hope to motivate others and to hope to inspire them based on what you have experienced in your own life and that that using speaking, uh, the power of speaking and that gift that you have. And it is a gift. I mean, again, I've seen your talks and 100% you have the, that gift. And then to be able to take that to the next level and to not only inspire and motivate, um, but to actually be a part of the change, go into schools and embed this into curriculum, speak with students. Uh, on a one-to-one -one personal level, I think that's, I think that's really amazing, and I think it's, um, I, I think it's a great example of the power of, uh, of of what you're mentioning of of speaking, of telling your story, um, because it seems that the sort of the evolution of your organization is a result of that, right? Of that speaking and that uh, that desire to motivate, and inspire others. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 really impressive. So. Wrapping up here, a couple more questions for you. Clearly, yours is a is is largely a story of incredible persistence in the face of adversity. We talked about the strategic planning that you needed to do to to get to where you wanted to go from day one, from the day that you left Honduras to to now. What advice would you give to listeners who work with students who are facing similar challenges, but but maybe haven't developed that motivation that you clearly had? at a very young age? One of my greatest, uh, greatest uh, quotes or things that I, um, that I gather from is a concept that we often, uh, we often misplan for, like we, we often misplan what we are capable of doing in 10 years. And we believe that we can overplan in one year. So oftentimes we have this mentality that it's, let, let me let me think short term because that's all what we can think of. Let me think what, what I can do in six months. Let me think what I can do in one year. But as somebody who strategically crafted this, I created this. Of course, you know, my family was there, my, my community was there, but I put it on paper. Before, before it happened, I shared the plan with people and people thought it was crazy. People were saying, why, why, do you, why do you think you can do this? Who do you think you are? I put it on paper and I, and I shared it with people and people said, hey, what do you need? Because I can help you get there. And they helped me get there faster. So because I put it on paper, I was able to show it. And whenever I was able to show it, people were able to believe me more. So for those people that have, have, have ideas or whether it's, you know, whether it's an educator that is thinking about doing a master's and they're thinking, well, a master's, I don't have the ability because it's going to take me longer. It's fine. You don't have to finish in two years. Maybe it'll take you five years. But at the end of the five years, you're going to get a master's. And the same thing with the principal who's thinking about doing a PhD. 
and who's thinking I don't have the time to do a PhD in four years, well, let it take four, let it take eight years. Let it take 10 years, but at the end of the 10 years, you're going to be able to be in a position of leadership to be able to create a higher impact. And I think that is that long-term mentality that got me here. It was understand, like, for example, the things that I am doing now, surrounding myself with people who are smarter than I am, because in the company, we're a team. And, and the quality of the services that we do are the result of the team. Mm -hmm. And we have experts, experts in the team. So whenever I think about 10 years from now, I'm surrounding myself today with the people that I want to be present 10 years from now, because I want to create the long-term impact. And the long-term impact is that I seek to return back to the same trash fields that I come from and to be able to clean them up and turn them into schools. And that's my dream. So I think that not only did I leave it, but I continue to leave it because as the future continues to go on, I have long-term visions. So that's, that's what my, my piece of two cents would be, that it's about a long-term plan and not just a short-term one. Yeah. It, it, it's, a, it's another great point. You know, so much of what school is about is, is a due date that's next week or next week or next semester, uh, or, or you graduate in four years, you know, maybe we need to spend more time thinking about what your future looks like, um, in 10 years. And speaking of that future, uh, I, I look forward to reconnecting with you in 10 years and seeing that dream that you have become a reality, because I get the sense that, uh, if anybody's going to do it, it's it's going to be someone like you. So I love I love that that mentality and that and that viewpoint. And of course, that's going to take uh, a community and a team that you're already starting to build out now. And I give you a lot of credit for doing it. So as we wrap up, um, two more questions for you. One is um, I, I wanted to ask you, given just your perspective and your experience, I'm wondering who who you look to as a leader in the field who inspires you right now um, and that you think others could learn from? You know, it's, it's fascinating because whenever I have, I have always looked for, for this person to look for. I have always thought about who, who can I look at at a national level and say, wow, like I want to model my work after this, this person. And especially within the field of education, I, am, I, am, I have high admiration for the work that Dr. Cardona uh, the current secretary of education is doing because I think that that the work that he's doing is speaking about social emotional learning, newcomers, dreamers, DACA recipients uh, is 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 so important in the nation. Not only to be not only to be a conversation uh, in, inside inside of uh, uh, closed doors, but to be brought to the national uh, front line is so important. So to be able to see him do that gives me hope, gives me hope for the future to understand that as he created a team, he brought dreamers with him and he brought uh, people that are from the ground, people that are in the grassroots. Um, and that inspires me because I understand that, that, that as he continues to do work, that, that that triggering effect would then impact English language learners, would impact students who just recently arrived in the country, and that hopefully more policy at the national level can provide more opportunities for institutions of higher education for the same students that currently are graduating high school, but the states barred them from accessing institutions of higher ed. So I think that having that national leader, it's important for national policy change. Yeah, you know, you talked about the importance of having people who 
represent the populations that we're serving in classrooms. Well, how great is it to have someone who's, you know, leading the nation in this? Um, have to ask: Is that is that something that you see yourself aspiring to do someday? Hands down, hands down. But in Honduras, but in Honduras, you know. And I don't know how. I don't know how. Um, you know, God, God is the architect of my own destiny. And I would see how life continues to evolve. But what I do know, what I do know is that I seek to work and to continue to collaborate and serve the United States because I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful to everything that the United States has given to me that I believe that the American dream is one that it's international. It's one that goes across borders to be able to help our brothers and sisters. It's just that to me, it just happens to be my native family. So. In the future, that's that's my dream, to be able to work within the department, to be able to build schools across the nation. Well, I'd love to see it. And by you helping Honduras, you're, you're helping the international community, you're helping our country. And I think that's just something that we need to be able to see more clearly as a, uh, as a country that right now is a little too divided. Um, but you bring up some really good points. Boy, I wish we had another two hours. Maybe we can do a follow-up. But but between now and then, um, how can people learn more about the work you're doing, Dr. Salaya? Because there is a, there's an incredible amount of resources out there of yours. And I, I, I really uh, enjoyed looking at all of it uh, from the videos to the reading before um, before we met. But what's the best place that people can go to learn more about you? Of course. Um, thank you. And thank you very much for the opportunity to be able to share my experiences and to be able to connect with your audience. And I'm eager to connect. I'm eager to serve. I'm here to be a resource um, and to be able to also see our communities experience that change, that generational impact of higher education. And they can contact me at uh, Jose Luis at drcelaya.com or they can just check out the website as well as drcelaya.com. And I'm also on social media on each uh, on every platform. Um, as Dr. Celaya speaks, um, but I'm eager. I'm eager to connect, eager to serve um, and, and, and be here. Great. Well, we will put up all of those uh, links on our uh, show notes, as well as the blog post that we'll put up with this episode. Um, you can find that all, as always uh, at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community. Um, Dr. Jose Luis Celaya, it has been an absolute pleasure uh, catching up with you. I had been anticipating and looking forward to this interview for a long time, and it did not disappoint. Thank you so much. My honor. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.